Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's kick off this Thursday with an update to a case from January 19th of 2020 out of California. All right, let's dive back in time to that fateful evening where 14-year-old Joshua Avascu was hanging out with friends and his brother when he lost a game of hot potato, and he had to choose for his punishment One of two things, either playing the prank of doorbell ditch or jumping into a neighbor's pool fully clothed. Well, he picked the punishment of playing doorbell ditch. He and the five other boys went searching for the house to prank. And after driving the neighborhood, they picked the home of 45-year-old Anurag Chandra to doorbell ditch. And they did this because they saw a purple LED light in one of the rooms. And they figured a teenager lived in that home, and therefore they might have chill parents who wouldn't be rattled by the prank. Well, Joshua rang Chandra's doorbell, and he also mooned Chandra, who was watching through the blinds. Joshua then ran and jumped into a Prius being driven by 18-year-old Sergio Cupanzano. An angry Chandra ran out of the house and jumped into his own car, taking off after them, and he left his cell phone behind. Now, he testified that he had no intention of hurting the teens, but that he wanted to express his anger with the boys. Well, Chandra at one point was driving 99 miles per hour in a 40 mile per hour zone just in order to catch up with the Prius. And according to testimony from the surviving boys, he rear-ended the Prius multiple times during the chase until the boys crashed into a tree. The testimony continued saying that Chandra drove by slowly, staring at the crash site, but did not stop. Now, according to the prosecution, Chandra returned home and wouldn't explain to his wife what had just occurred. Three of the boys died in the crash. Joshua's 16-year-old brother, Jacob, Drake Ruiz, and Daniel Hawkins, who were also both 16. Chandra testified that he had drank 12 beers in three hours before the crash. He also testified that he intended to call 911 when he returned home because, remember, he left his cell phone there, but he passed out instead of calling. And here's the twist. About three hours after the crash, Chandra did call 911, but he called because he saw people in his front yard. Those people ended up being California Highway Patrol officers. And during that call, he didn't mention the boys or the crash. Now, the jury took three hours on Friday to convict Chandra of first-degree murder for the three teen boys. Chandra faces a life without parole when he is set to be sentenced on July 14. All right. Let's head north to Idaho, where we've been in the hurry-up-and-wait mode with the college murder case out of Moscow. Brian Koberger, the 28-year-old criminology doctorate student, is accused of attacking and killing four college students at the University of Idaho. This has been all over the news, and I just feel like a recap isn't really necessary in this case, except for this. I want to remind everyone of the four beautiful souls that were taken that early morning of November 13th of last year. Zana Kernodal, Maddie Mogan, and Kay Ligon Calvez were roommates in the off-campus housing. Zana's boyfriend, Ethan Chopin, was spending the night. All were viciously stabbed in the ruthless attack. Now, two roommates were left unharmed. Bethany Funk and Dylan Mortensen 
are both considered material witnesses to the crime. A version of Dylan's survival story was an extensive part of the arrest affidavit for Koberger, but we haven't heard much from Bethany, except that in the affidavit, it states she acknowledged when the roommates entered the residence for the evening, and also that forensic downloads on her phone were used to help determine when the homicides occurred. Now, Koberger is scheduled to appear in court on June 26th for a week-long preliminary hearing, where evidence will be presented for the first time about his alleged involvement in the mass murder of the four students. Last week, the court-appointed defense attorney for Koberger issued a subpoena for Bethany Funk to give testimony at the June preliminary hearing, claiming that Bethany had information which is exculpatory to the defendant. Okay, meaning that information could possibly clear Koberger of these charges. Now, it's unclear what evidence the defense team believes Bethany can offer in this case, but she initially pushed back on the need to appear. But her attorney has now conceded that she will meet with the attorneys for the defense in her hometown in Nevada before that hearing. Now, I consulted a criminal defense attorney who assured me Bethany really couldn't fight this subpoena. He also said the defense will treat this preliminary hearing as sort of a discovery phase. The defense wants to learn as much as they can about the case that the state and tends to present. All right, on Monday, the judge in the case scheduled a new hearing for May 25th on something completely different. It's about a court-ordered gag order. Magistrate Judge Megan Marshall had previously said she would not address the motion on the gag order until after the Supreme Court of Idaho issued a decision on an appeal from a media coalition led by the Associated Press. Okay, that was a lot. So basically, the press wants people to be able to talk about the case. The state's highest court last week dismissed that appeal, finding that it should have been filed in a lesser court. Well, now a hearing involving Kaylee Goncalves family and dozens of media representatives has been set for that May 25th date. They will challenge the gag order. I'll keep you updated on that hearing as well as any other information that might come forward in this case. And since we're talking about murder in Idaho, let's give you the week four update on the Lori Vallow Daybell trial. This is one complicated case. So if you need a refresher, listen to Monday's episode on rise and crime about Lori and then come back and join us here. And should we just start with the biggest bombshells? Earlier in the week, what seems like some pretty remarkable evidence was introduced by the state a piece of duct tape that was securing the black tarp that covered JJ's body in his makeshift grave, well, it had a strand of Lori's hair attached to the adhesive. And I won't get into the DNA statistics, but we can say it. It's definitely Lori's hair. And I think this shook the courtroom initially. But remember, the defense has yet to put on their case. I spoke to a criminal defense attorney, and he told me that the defense will most likely make it clear through testimony that JJ was Lori's kid. Her long blonde hair is going to be everywhere that kid has been. But he also did say it does rest in the jurors' minds that she's somehow connected to the death. Then on Tuesday, some friends and neighbors of Chad took the stand. Todd and Alice Gilbert both testified about Tammy Daybell's death and the events that happened in rapid succession after her passing. So let me explain how closely connected the couple and Chad had become. Alice voluntarily served in a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints women's organization called the Relief Society. She was the president of this group, and that group is defined by geographical boundaries that the church leadership determines. Well, Tammy Daybell served voluntarily as one of her assistants. So this meant that 
They met on a weekly basis to discuss how better to help their neighbors both in and out of the church. Todd and Chad had become such good friends that Chad named a character in one of his fictional novels after Todd. Well, on the morning of Tammy's death, Chad and Tammy's daughter, Emma, called Alice Gilbert. She was distraught, and she was telling Alice that Tammy had died. Alice, of course, wanted to help, and she indicated that to Emma that she would call the bishop of their church congregation. Alice testified that Chad asked her to not call the bishop for at least a half hour. Well, Alice called the church leader anyway and began organizing to help the Daybell family through the tragedy. She testified that when she went to the Daybell house later on, on the day of Tammy's death, that Chad was emotionless. Well, I spoke off the record with a neighbor of the Daybells who verified this account. This woman also had stopped by the Daybell house to help with funeral arrangements and also to offer her condolences. And she described Chad as very businesslike in his conversations about Tammy. Okay, but the real fireworks happened when Todd was on the stand. Now, he mentioned that his first introduction to Lori was while listening to a podcast that Lori and Chad had participated in together. When a witness introduces a concept like knowing and listening to a podcast, that makes it possible for the defense to submit that podcast into evidence, which is exactly what Lori's defense team did. Well, after multiple objections and sidebars, the podcast was entered into evidence and then played for the courtroom. So let's just take a listen to Lori on that podcast. Jesus Christ is to wake up the women warriors because I too have gone to the bottom edge just like Thor, I'm a witness of his of his testimony I too have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ and he has told me my mission and he has sent me to help people and lift them in their missions Now I'll let you decide what you think of those declarations of Lori being a warrior and having visitations from Jesus Christ, but for me, she appears to be operating in an orbit of wackiness. Getting 40 minutes of Lori speaking to the jury via a podcast was a big win for the defense. The jury got to hear her testifying of Christ and about her mission of gathering the 144,000 righteous followers, and the prosecution can't even ask her questions about it unless she chooses to take the stand later in the trial. The Gilberts also testified about how Chad visited them at their home less than a week after Tammy had died. And during that visit, he told them he had found his next wife and that he planned on marrying her soon. They also testified that Chad brought Lori to their home a few days later and that he was very touchy and cuddly with Lori. They said he never acted that way with Tammy. One reporter who has been in the courtroom every day since the trial began noted that Lori smiled and giggled when the Gilberts talked about the canoodling that Lori and Chad were doing. All right, other testimony from week four has included additional expert medical testimony about bruising on Tammy's arms. After Tammy's body was exhumed in Utah, bruises were noted on her shoulders and upper arms. The expert testified that this was consistent with being held down. If the fact that this bruising was missed during the initial discovery of Tammy on that Saturday morning, if it bothers you, you're not alone. But hindsight is 2020, and here we are today talking about an exhumed body. Now, the defense in this trial has yet to present their case, and so we'll be having updates for the next couple of weeks until that verdict is reached. All right, finally today, let's talk about the grisly discovery on Monday afternoon of seven bodies on a property 
in Henrietta, Oklahoma. Now that's a small town of under 7,000 residents and it's about 90 miles east of Oklahoma City. Here's what led up to the discovery. In the early morning hours of Monday, police issued an Amber Alert for two teen girls who had been reported missing. 14-year-old Ivy Webster and 16-year-old Brittany Brewer were last heard from on Monday morning at 1.30 a.m. Ivy's mother said Ivy's Life360 app location had been turned off and that she wasn't responding to calls or texts. According to media reports, the two girls were traveling with a registered sex offender named Jesse McFadden. All right, now McFadden was married to Holly Guess. Holly had three teen children, 17-year-old Riley, 15-year-old Michael, and 13-year-old Tiffany. The two missing girls, along with McFadden and his wife Holly and the stepchildren, were all found shot to death on the remote Henrietta property. McFadden had missed the start of his scheduled jury trial Monday morning. He had been charged with soliciting sexual conduct with a minor and also with possession of child pornography. McFadden had previously been incarcerated for first-degree rape in 2003, and he was released in 2020. The bodies were discovered after police made a second visit to the McFadden property on Monday. And we don't know what the first visit was about, if it was about finding the girls or if it was about the missed jury trial, but they did find the bodies on the second visit. Now, Henrietta Public Schools posted on their Facebook and also on their website that it is grieving over the loss of several of its students. The Facebook note said, Our hearts are hurting, and we have considered what would be best for our students in the coming days. Officials said school would be in session, and that mental health professionals and clergy would be on hand to help counsel students. But they also said they would understand if families wanted to keep their children home from school. Now, details are pretty limited at this time, so I'll keep a watch out for more updates and then share those with you when they happen. Well, that's your Thursday edition of Rise in Crime. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.